Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. A big welcome to Season 6, where we continue to explore coaching, learning and development. As usual, my guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. I'll now hand over to them to introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Lawrence Halstead. I was a, a fencer in the UK, in the, world, the UK Sport World Cup system for about 10 years. Uh, I competed in the London and Rio Olympic Games. Then I moved to Denmark, where I became the performance director of the Danish Fencing Federation for, and that was the last five years. And I've just recently left that role to take up a, a position in a wonderful nonprofit called the True Athlete Project, where I'm the director of mentoring and do some consultancy and coaching alongside that. Hi, I'm John Rhodes, and I'm a founding member of Imagery Coaching, which is an organisation. Uh, dedicated to uh, supporting individuals to enhance their ability to use their imagination. So that's from uh, from rugby teams through to CEOs of big organisations. I also lecture at the University of Plymouth as well with a with a forte, I suppose, in uh, resilience and how to train resilience. Um, so currently working in a, in, a, in a great deal of sport, but also um, very much applied as well within within organisations. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Richard Cheatham. I'm a senior fellow in sports coaching at University of Winchester and also a coach developer and working alongside coaches in a number of different fields from, from rugby union to um, at, uh, from elite level right down to community level. So that's my area and that's my expertise and I'm delighted to share some of my learnings with you today. Jens, absolute pleasure to have you all on. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, a, a genuinely stellar lineup, so I'm I'm super excited about it today. Um, great stuff. Just before we start, just a reminder uh, for anyone listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly to links for all the content we discuss. So, Lawrence, we are coming to you first. What is it going to chat to us about? Yeah, thanks, Phil. So, in August last year, I, I published my first book, which was I mentioned that I work at this organisation called the True Athlete Project. We have a mission to, to bring about, to create a more compassionate culture of sport. And this book that I wrote was kind of on our behalf. It was basically kind of distilling our entire approach, our philosophy to athlete development. So the book's called Becoming a True Athlete, uh, A Practical Philosophy for Flourishing Through Sport. And really our kind of, the organization is a big mix of athletes coaches sports psychologists mindfulness teachers and we all have we're united by this vision of sport being having the potential to be an incredible force for good in the world but that it all too often fails to live up to that value proposition and everybody i imagine listening and anyone involved in sport will recognize some aspect of that so from the olympic level all the way down to grassroots we have kind of well Beijing Winter Olympics was a great example of these kind of ethical issues around hosting Olympic Games and just the massive overarching burgeoning cost of running an Olympic Games which all sits on the host nation there have been kind of corruption and uh, ethical environmental issues from for the last 50 60 years of running Olympic Games 
down through these kind of toxic high performance cultures that we're seeing coming out across the world, abusive, emotional, physical, even sexual abuse of athletes, down to the kind of elitism of children's sport, um, treating kids as adults and pushing our kind of win at all costs approach down their throats and how that affects coaching practices. I mean, it really is at all levels of sport that we think that sport has lost track of its true kind of values and true value proposition. And what we need is to, to kind of claw our way back there somehow. And so the book is a, uh, it's a philosophy for athlete development. It's aimed at the athletes themselves. So it's written at that level, but also for kind of those supporting them, coaches, uh, psychologists, staff, anyone around an athlete. Uh, and it lays out this kind of higher purpose for sport, which is about creating a more compassionate, vibrant, kind of collective world, which is similar to the, the values of Olympism, the Olympic Charter. Uh, then I enumerate some of the kind of true athlete virtues. And now we, we all know these kind of traditional traits that are associated with being an athlete, being involved in sport, kind of teamwork and discipline and effort and uh, all those kind of things, hard work. Uh, but they're, what, they're, what we're seeing now is that those traits themselves alone don't, they're not, they're not enough to kind of bring about a, a fulfilled and healthy life for the participant, for the, for the athlete going through it. So these true athlete virtues are filling in some of those pieces that are absolutely in, integral to thriving in life and in sport. And so that's, a, that's the second part of the book is these, these, these virtues and just quickly their integrity compassion responsibility and awareness and then the the third section of the book is some mentally emotional strategies practices for how to underpin how to work on those virtues so that's the book in a nutshell and that's our kind of premise is that that we can do so much better and we really we need to do so much better to to improve the culture of sport at all levels and across the world Fantastic. Thank you very much. I mean, that's, it's, that's a pretty broad and, and deep topic. And I'm already conscious we've only got kind of an hour and a half. But um, I guess my first question is a little bit around actually, and this, this might be too big a question to answer in one go, but do the fairy tale stories that we all love, and then those narratives within sport, do, do we think they almost just create a little bit of a false front that, that sport has is that and it's lovely and it's wonderful and it does all these great things but actually behind that sport's always been pretty corrupt pretty damaging pretty horrendous in some ways like is that has do we think that's changed has sport always been that and we just want to find the fairy tales or is it somewhere in the in between and it's just human nature people have bad sides as well as they have good sides and sport kind of just highlights the good and the bad and everything in between. As I say, it's a pretty big question. So if you can nail that well, one early, that'd be good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sport hasn't always been like this. The, the it's grown as a business and the kind of money involved has made a huge impact. And especially on the UK scene, since lottery funding came in after the Atlanta Olympics, that changed kind of the whole face of, of Olympic sport, at least. Um, the myths of sport, I think, yeah, it's never lived up to all of its ideals. That's that's a kind of yeah, that's not the case. But there there are some myths that, that kind of retained that maybe we haven't always had. This myth of the winner winning a competition or winning the gold medal being the the panacea, the thing that's going to make your life all fit together and f f fulfillment for the rest of your your time on earth. It's just a complete 
lie. If if you're not good enough without the gold medal, you won't be good enough with it. And that is the that's a myth that we're just sold repeatedly, and kids are sold. And basically, it's this kind of outcome focus that if I can just get to that that podium, the top seven, the podium, then everything will be okay. And what we see is the opposite almost that athletes that haven't done the kind of that rounding work to build themselves up as humans get to the top step of the podium or like Johnny Wilkinson, the world cup medal winner, and then find them, then find themselves bereft, empty, just lost of meaning and kind of struggling with this big question. Was that all it, all it was? And that we see over and over again, even the likes of Michael Phelps, who's the greatest kind of Olympic athlete of all time, just felt said he felt like 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 a non-human going through that period and and that's just one of these myths that kind of builds it all up that yeah if you get there then everything will be okay and really if your focus isn't on the journey and making that experience all along the way something worthwhile then winning the competition isn't going to do it for you i guess a few other people like kath bishop has has kind of taken up this stance a little bit with with her book and, and those types of things how and, and i open this this out to the other guys as well how do we think we we take this message and we take this stance and we spread it wider and wider like has it got to come from the athletes has it got to come from the business world has it got to come from the fans like how how do we construct this and and actually make it a um, a movement, make it to a point like, do athletes need to stop saying, look, we're just not going to compete in the Olympics until the corruption's gone and it's fair and it's, you know, better managed and this type of stuff? Or is that too extreme? Can we do it in little increments? Like, what, what are your guys' thoughts on, on how we kind of take up this challenge? Yeah, I think, I think for me, it's about parent education. I think there's not a great deal of parent education that goes on <clears throat> in clubs um, from grassroots all the way through to uh, that kind of more performance level. So I feel that what parents say to youngsters is hugely important when they leave the pitch. You know, you can do all the hard work in the club and the coaches can do all the hard work and lessons and how they, how they uh, uh, give praise to a youngster. But ultimately, unless the parents are brought into what you're doing, it becomes a, it becomes a huge struggle. So I feel that, you know, the part of the movement is definitely parent education. Um, from what I see as well, being a parent, definitely more needs to be going around uh, focused on learning above winning. And again, you could, you could, you could do a very quick test and just say to, you know, say to young athletes, what's more important to your coach winning or learning. And hopefully athletes will say absolutely winning. Uh, sorry, learning. God, you caught me off guard there. And then you say to the parents as well, parents, what's more important winning or learning. And hopefully again, the parents will say learning, but of course, that's not what always happens. So it's a good indication of where you are. That's where I am in my in my slip up there. It's got my lecture slides up from last week. <laughs> I think it's I think it's an incredibly difficult landscape to operate because you know you can do what you can do and and uh, the consequences of success in sports are now so obvious that it becomes, I think it blindsides people. You know, look at the money that you can make as a winner in sport from tennis, golf, rugby, and the sheer wealth. So the consequences of becoming successful are, you know, incredible, but the proportion of people who reach that is so small. Part of my role in, in coaching, working with my students and working with parents and 
even the community club last week is I think the most impactful work I've done is where I get the coaches or the parents to become the participants. Because once they experience that, they reconnect with what it's like to be a child and their values change. You know, I, I always want to my daughters, me measure my daughters, visit to the BMX club on a Saturday, was will you come back next week? That's the, that's the measure, Sim simple as that. You know, is it got something that makes her want to go next week? Does she drive that? And her world, and I talk for her and I talk for a lot of children, their world is not driven by financial gain at those entry levels of sport. It's gained, but we all know it's driven by love. I love doing this. I love being with my friends. This is exciting. I have a great time. It's enjoyable. And, and that's what we owe them, that childhood experience. We owe them that because it doesn't happen again. And... You know, I, I'm very mindful of what Lawrence says, and I absolutely agree with what both you guys have said. I think the challenge is that we're coming from this, maybe um, two countries, two cultures that try to try to promote that. But at Olympic level, you're fighting against all the other countries who are high-performance sport. have got a very different culture and different roots. Um, and I suppose my role is to make people think twice about what that childhood sports experience has got to be like, because it's driven by love more than anything else. I love doing it. I love being with my friends, as I said before. No child goes into a sport and says, I could be a millionaire from doing this. And the core runnings quote, which Lawrence talks about, you know, if you're not good enough without a gold medal, you'll never be good enough with one. It's so true. So it's how we pass all that, how we wrap up and how we educate, as John says, parents, and also what we create our environments to be like. What's the environment where people flourish? I think you, you guys have hit the nails on the head with in relation to grassroots sport. And I'd just add at the elite level, there's a, a real onus on the funding bodies. So the likes of UK Sport, Sport England, and the government, the yeah, the this, the sports department of the government to to have the right philosophy to their sport and uk sport have moved in that direction with this medals and more approach kind of rebranding i think there's still some work to do to unpack for the people doing the work what more means what they want by that what they mean by that um that's what we see anyway that not everybody's equally understanding or kind of aware of what actually is that and how you're going to judge us on it so there's a huge impact on the trickle down so that there's where what's the pressure on the performance directors from above on what do they what do they have to achieve this this kind of review cycle after the winter olympics is going to be interesting to see because uk sport have talked about disappointing results not enough medals there'll be funding reviews but it won't just be on medals that they review so what are they going to be reviewing on and how are those funding decisions made it makes a huge difference that trickles down to the pds down to the coaches and then I mean, beyond that, then the kind of the other yeah, philosophy of the coaches involved is absolutely critical. And there's an there's an awareness raising piece, there's an education piece in there. I think we at the Trethy Project we we do some really popular workshops on the role of coaches as social change makers, and that it just resonates so much. And often coaches are kind of so. So in there, even kind of grassroots level coaches, not professional, but up to the professional level, they're so into the the kind of the weeds of what they do, the 
the the planning and the structure of the sessions they have to run that they forget that they have this incredible role in society they have this amazing uh, impact on young lives and they really are social change makers depending and that that's for good or for worse so if we can influence the philosophy of the people working day in, I mean, they spend so much time with these athletes up more and more as they get more elite that that just, that's, that's pivotal to the, to the whole process. I wanted to tell, uh, in that random message about the man on the roof story, which, um, I never really got to enter a presentation without some random story. It's either that with the cats here, but we'll go for the man on the roof and the submarine later. Um, I went to Birmingham City Coach, uh, Coach Development Day. I presented around play, and we had a uh, police, former police hostage negotiator, presented. And you know, he had the whole of us in the palm of his hand with his story. And the bottom line, he, he had to go out of county to talk a man off the roof of his house who's about to jump. And the man on the roof had two children, same age as the police negotiator, was trying to negotiate the man down. He couldn't understand. He said, I can't understand why this guy would want to do that when he's got two children. I wouldn't do that. And his whole point was that the problem here is that he was negotiating him from the point of view of his morals and values, not of the man on the roof. And I think with Lawrence's point that we are coming from our philosophy, which I'm sure ours is fairly aligned, all four of us are aligned very similarly about that youth experience, that childhood experience, what we want sport to look like, sport to look like with someone who comes from a very different place. And certainly when you're in the high performance end, let's not always talk about that, where the consequences of winning and losing are funding and jobs and job retention. Um, but it also just remembering that on the pathway to get there, we, we have a huge responsibility to still retain our, our sense of um, balance around that that child is in front of us you know we talk about our obligation our responsibility to them so i think the difficulty is that we have similar morals and values similar philosophies what are we up against when that person reaches the performance sport end yeah i think, I think to add value to that as well um it's it's also important to know what your distinctiveness is as a value because quite often we inherit values through generations and I feel that we need to have a reset every so often and say, right, as a group, what, what are our core values and, and how do we personify those words? Like, what does it actually look like? What does integrity look like? What does courage look like? What does having a good sense of humour look like for us all? What does fun look like? So again, it's figuring out what we've got in common, but also, you know, that's what a team's edge is. The, their edge is their uniqueness. And until you know that, I think that you're you're not really diving into that kind of, I suppose, kind of that higher work or deeper work ability to be able to understand how diverse you are and how that's really important as well. I like the, that idea about resetting as a generation almost, or as a, as a new culture. And it makes me think about this example we just had in the Winter Olympics of the Russian coach of Valieva, who had the most horrific experience, a 15 year old girl being just a horrendous Olympic experience capped off by just collapsing under the, the worst of pressure and her coach berating her when she came off the ice. We, as a certainly as a country and as a kind of leaders in sport, can say this is not acceptable. That is just very clearly, we're not going to coach like that. No one is allowed to coach like that. 
we have to do that, but not just in that way. There are plenty of behaviors and kind of values that I think we can be prescriptive about now because we know that we know, like what, like you said, Cheats, that love is at the heart of the, the youth experience of sport. I would say that love is at the heart of the performance level of sport as well. And creating these healthier, happier people at that level will improve our performances. So I don't think it's a, a spectrum where you choose well-being or high performance it's absolutely one they go hand in hand but i think we can be absolutely prescriptive about this is the this is our philosophy around sport at all levels and and we won't accept this and we'll educate we'll do everything we can it's it's an ethical prerogative but it's also it's all just more better evidence back that, that this is a better way to unlock potential to achieve more to perform better and I, I agree with you about the love. I'm, I, I've been fortunate enough to spend some time, not much, not very much time, but at Saracens. And uh, not many players leave Saracens. You know, you go to their lunch, their sort of talks at lunchtime, and it's player led. It's there's a lot of humour. There's a lot of enjoyment. There's a lot of I don't feel I'm going to work. You know, which is sometimes when it's your job, you are effectively going to work, and there's such a great environment there. And they have huge success. I think our, our challenge is it something we'd ever be overcome. Can we overcome the culture that is in the country where they talk to athletes and the way they do after they come off the ice? I don't know if we can overturn that culture. Sadly, I, I use the phrase human wastage, you know, which is for every 100 you put in the system, you can afford to lose those because you're only interested in the 10 that make it. What happens to the 90? I think it's a very difficult space to try and send that message to cultures who aren't receptive to it, um, coaches who aren't receptive because it's not the path they came up, it's not the path they walked, you know. Um, so that that's, I think, our, our challenge. But what can we do? What can I do on a day-to-day -day basis? I can just project to those coaches on developing the environment that I know children flourish in. I want them to experience that. John talks about humour and laughter. Um, you know, that is critical. That is a critical part of it. And that shouldn't be lost as you go through the path. I, I have to agree with you, Lawrence, completely. Because if you're miserable going to, to work, then change your job. You know, uh, if you're miserable in that sport, then why are you in it in the first place? So how do we educate? I think we have to reframe what being involved in sport is like for some people not for everybody yeah. you guys have, have touched on it there I, I guess how do we how do we engage and manage and deal with the people that their lived experience was they they came through the pathway they came into professional sport and they probably were bullied and they probably were harassed and abused in in a number of ways by the coaches that dealt with them and and they see how far they went and how successful potentially they were like their lived experience becomes the way right and there's always a danger of this that i've i've never been a professional athlete you know that that it was never going to happen but it's it's been and gone if it ever was i'd be pretty adamant you can do it with love and you can do it with with caring and this type of stuff and it shouldn't destroy people but there is a pretty loud voice from a lot of other people that, that have gone through it that says, no, you absolutely can't. Like it has to be brutal. It has to be hard because that that is what it takes. And I mean, it's staggering that a gold medal is such has such a draw that people will suffer so much over a pretty extensive period of time just to get this 
little piece of gold around their neck. And I always just find that amazing. And I, I think I've told this story before, but I, I was fortunate enough to sit next to Greg Searle on a um, plane coming back from Portugal and they were in a training camp and we'd been in a camp. And um, I just asked him, like, is, is it worth it? Like, is, is all the stress and the hard work? And he just, just slumped in the seat and went, yeah, no one's ever asked me that before. I was just like, oh God, like this is just before 2012. I was like, I've ruined him. I've just, I've just blown him out of the water with this really naive question. And he was like, hmm, no, it's probably not, but we still do it. And I was just like, I mean, that is, is a fair play to him, but it's, it's pretty insane. And, and he isn't one that, that, I mean, he was saying there should be a better balance. They are almost trained to the point of exhaustion every day and all this type of stuff. And there are better ways, but I, I just wonder how, how do, I don't think we can silence the voice. You can't silence someone's lived experience, but how can we influence those people and, and try and get them on board? I mean, I, I don't want to talk to speak. Uh, I, was, I would talk to other guys, but I would say that there are still those who say what's good enough for me is good enough for you. But what I would say is they don't last very long. They get found out. You and me, you and I feel know the world that we the, the coaches we work with we hear the stories those people just move from place to place and are moved on they don't last people don't they have maybe an initial impact that kind of um i can put a time frame on it initial uh, i'm thinking of one coach in particular but i obviously won't name him and it has a period of time it has like a boost and then it kind of wanes and people realize that it's just not sustainable to have to have that and then they move on and they do the same somewhere else and somewhere else so it's the people who offer those positions, those people who need to be educated to realise that it, 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 it can be in mind, but it doesn't have to be. You know, I would say, what's your opening question when you're employing somebody in that position? What one question would you ask them that give you a picture of what they're really like? That's what anybody, you know, I, they're in front of me, they're going to coach my daughter. I used to do coaching blind date in my coach development workshops, okay? Parent on one side, three coaches on the other side. Parent doesn't meet the coaches, ask some questions. What's important to parent? Listen to the response of the coaches and thinking, do you know what, I'm going to go with that coach. I don't know what sport they do. I don't know what they look like, but they certainly sound like the environment that I want to place my child in. Or as an employer, manager of a team, director of a team, I want you to be in my environment. So what's your question? I'm asking you to answer that, but I'm always interested in that. I, I would ask, um, how many elite youngsters have you coached? And if they give me any number, then they're probably not very good. <laughs> I think it's a, I, I love the coaching blind date example. I'm going to keep that for whenever I can use that. <laughs> you, have, you have to reference me. I've only written chapters and books, never a book, but maybe just give me a... <laughs> okay. Don't even do that. Just let me know if it works. I'm just fascinated to know what the questions are. Yeah, I like that. Um, interesting, though, Phil, you brought up Greg Sell and the rowing team. I, I think there's... That's a particularly a good example of an incredibly successful system that has worked for the people that got through it. So the ones who are standing on the top of the podium they're the ones that could handle that system but what you don't see is that hundreds of people for whom that style of coaching that style of that, it's a brutal system not just physically i mean it it's not been a very pleasant system from things that i've heard as well and that and it doesn't have to be like that yeah sure you have to like in lots of sports you have to train 
train brutally. Physically, you have to be at exhaustion very often if you're going to get that level. But you don't have to create a system, a structure, kind of a culture that is brutal based on internal competition and sniping. And like that, that's the kind of thing that you can, you can really affect. But what we hear is from the success stories, those who, who, who thrived in it or at least survived it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear Cheat say that some of those coaches, they just don't stay long. Because that that will be the case for some people. If they can't get with the times, then they can't be with the times, really. But ideally, you'd you'd have you just just through good common sense and um, kind of just showing people that this is both ethically and just for the reasons that they care about. Even if you only care about winning, these are the better reasons. These are the better ways to win is to to create thriving environments and to to set your, your your team up with love rather than fear. Um, so there are all sorts of arguments and you can, I mean, we have, we have the, we're on the right side of the argument. So you just hope that that gets through. And if it doesn't, and I'm sorry, this, this game isn't for you. I think the consequences, and, sorry, just, just, just briefly, the consequences I think are important. You know? um, I, I don't think fear, fear is the worst thing. You know, actually, if you look at human psychology, fear, John knows more, far more than I do, but, you know, are we driven by fear? Are we driven by love to do to get the best out of us? How can you get the best out of me? I I think you've both nailed it there. And I, I wonder if that's, you know, can we find more examples where love and caring and compassion and all the good things have helped create fantastic people that have been successful? Because I, I do feel like that you can sell that to the people that really care about winning and go, I've got a better way for you to win. I've got, a, I've got a way that can make you more successful. For me, that that would be an obvious... If they don't like that, then they're clearly attracted to the neg- negative behaviours and the feeling that elicits, and that would be a big red flag for me. Because if, you are, if you're obsessed with winning, you're just going to do everything you possibly can. And, and then, as you say, if, if we can sell the, the good... I, I almost feel like it's a bit of a Star Wars thing here, isn't it? Like, the, the dark side of the Force is, is pulling some people in and we, we've got to pull them the other way. But, um, yeah, I, I wonder if that's... Can we just find better examples and better ways to do it and, and shout about them and sell them more to more people? So um, I'm already really conscious of time. Is we could definitely talk about this all day. So I think we'll kind of just pause that one and uh john we're coming across to you what are you going to chat to us about yeah uh, before i get involved into into talking to you about imagery for a second um i'm just thinking you know i think culture coaches are definitely what's needed in industry someone needs to come in and to, and to run that kind of initial 360 um if only we could call it a culture club that would be uh, my dream come true um so on to imagery and i've uh, I'd like to share with you all. I'm going to go around actually to all the everyone here on the Zoom call, and uh, and ask you to rate something in a moment. So I'm going to explore the world of imagery coaching and then why it's really important for athletes, and also it's important for parents and coaches as well, um, because again, this is how you see the next kind of the match turning out on the weekend or perhaps the training session. This is how you see maybe the club. Um, develop over the next few years so we're talking about vision people call it a vision or kind of long-term plans so let's start off by measuring i'm going to go to cheats first in a minute because he's always on the on the ball um and i, and I, I go around and on, on, on our call i'm going to ask you to rate something okay so i'd like you to in your mind's eye i want you to imagine an apple mm-hmm. 
And from zero, John, what you're talking about, to five, it's as vivid as the real thing. What would you score at cheats? Oh, it was in the fridge right now, so it's four and a half in my Four and a half. Okay. Four for me. Four. Phil? Mm, three. Three. Okay, cool. So what we found out here is that uh, Cheats is actually, what he's doing right now is he's dreaming about eating an apple in the fridge. And the more detail you add to something, so if you think about eating it, so how it might taste. So again, Cheats, can you, can you imagine how it tastes? Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, can, so five. I, I I'm not yeah. making up, I definitely can. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, Lawrence, can you imagine the taste? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Phil? Yep, absolutely. Cool. Lawrence, uh, oh, sorry. Cheats, how about this then? If you if you bit into the apple and you looked at the apple and you realised that there was half a worm inside, how does it taste? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I'd probably be disappointed, but I wouldn't spit out what I'd already eaten. That'd be too late. That'd be the time to me now. I'd put it in the bin, probably. I'd hold that the next time I bit into it. That's the problem. <laughs> Would you pull it out and then just carry on eating? Uh, I'll take it back to the car if I want to know why. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this goes to show a few things. So first off, a lot of people, a lot of athletes that we work with cannot use imagery. Okay. So they struggle to use any visual imagery. Now that's kind of interesting because when we as coaches try to explain set plays, for example, or as coaches, we say, um, right, our hooker, let's think about where the ball is going to go in the line out. Some people cannot do that. They cannot use visual imagery. And of course, imagery is holistic. So we look at it as a, as a, as a, as a holistic process of also things like your self-talk as well. As you get the ball, and as you start to talk to yourself where, where the ball is going to go, you start to think about perception to play. You start to plan what might happen you are using holistic imagery in this process. So the important thing is, is that we need to do a lot more to coach everyone, not just youngsters, at every level, how to use their, their um, imagination in a, in a better productive way so that they can actually benefit from performance gains um, through using this kind of intervention. And that's kind of what we do. And what we found with a lot of our research is that um, even elite level athletes, when you explain to them set plays, for example, they will struggle to do it unless they actually give it a go. And they try it out and they go through trial and error process of feeling the movements and then they can bank that information. If you ask them to imagine something off the bat, sometimes it may not be effective. And again, teaching this skill to youngsters, again, is hugely valuable because what we know is, is that those who can use their imagination in great depth are the ones that are often going on to high levels. So we've got that data. We can empirically say that imagery is really important for progressing through that level of talent, but also it's hugely trainable as well. And again, this is important for parents. Why is that? It's because parents are planning. A lot of youngsters don't do a great deal of planning. You know, what do you see? You know, what's your purpose? Why are you playing the sport? You know, if you asked a young Andre Agassi, he would have said to win. You know, now it's about purpose. Um, and again, similar for a lot of a lot of youngsters, when we talk about you know, youngsters in sport, what happens is, is we say, what's your purpose? What do you want to get out of this sport? And they'll say, well, um, I'm not really sure. I'm just enjoying it. Brilliant. That's fine. They don't need to be so goal-centered on being an Olympian or, you know, being a, being a world-class athlete. 
as a 14 year old. So again, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, enabling them to plan more effectively, to perceive what might happen on the pitch. And that enables them to also be a lot more grounded, to use a lot of cues to re reinforce um, skills to ultimately to, to reset thinking under a huge amount of pressure as well. Again, we can use this in scanning. So scanning is ultimately taking pictures. So again, we're training people to use imagery to scan more effectively. So scanning really is um, not just looking at the ball as it's passed to you, but scanning around uh, in more of a, usually it's not 360, but it's a, you know, in that, in that kind of uh, dynamic view to look at where the opposition is or perhaps where attack, attacking plays might come from, but also um, to clearly catch the ball as well and to execute the move. So it's hugely valuable, not just in the prep phase, but also in the action phase. So that's kind of the, the direction I've been taking a lot of my research for the last, oh gosh, quite a few years now. Um, and now it's really focusing on the military is where I work at the moment, looking at how to um, yeah, better equip individuals to, uh, to be a lot more mindful, but also to make better choices under, under a huge amount of pressure as well. Um, and that kind of comes back to the kind of my, my, my couple of takeaways, I suppose, because I always think you can make this very complex, but ultimately it comes down to two things. And I always think about the decision-making um, in sport. And again, I'm, I'm interested to get your feedback on this, especially Lawrence's defence there. And, and obviously for you guys who have been involved in, uh, in rugby for, 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 for quite a time, is that um, when, I, when I usually coach youngsters, I keep it super simple. So sports psychology as a whole, or psychology as a whole, can be very complex. Where do you start? So, and what I like to see is I like to see coaches doing a lot less coaching. So they can, um, so the athlete has to think a lot more under pressure. So quite often we just use eyes open and eyes closed is what we use. So um, the individual will plan in detail, elaborate in detail using imagery and we'll coach them how to use their, their, their multi-sensory um, ability. And then when it comes to making a choice, we say eyes closed. It's something that you've already planned doesn't matter what happens in front of you, you are going to be executing whatever you've planned in your head. What eyes open is, you're going to play what's in front of you. And that is it. And that's what we get individuals to say to, them, to themselves. This is going to be eyes open. I'm going to play what's in front of me or eyes closed. Right? I'm going to be kicking the ball to touch. It's an eyes closed movement. And that kind of dialogue is a really good way to interact with youngsters um, uh, about sports psychology as a whole. Uh, and it kind of just makes that complex idea of decision making very simple. Fantastic. Sorry, I'm literally just scribbling down some notes. So um, no, there's loads in that. My, I'm going to jump back to the the Apple um, imagery thing. So how <laughs> how do you start with somebody that doesn't know what an Apple is? Because because we clearly know what an Apple is. So how do you imagine yeah. something if you haven't got that experience or that understanding or that knowledge to take a player brand new to the sport? Can you get them to bring other things that they've experienced or do they have to go through some sort of lived experience before they actually have a reference point for some of this? Yeah. So uh, you would always start with something which is pretty familiar. So whatever you, uh, if, if you're not, um, if you can't retrieve an apple, maybe it's a bike. Maybe you can try to visualize a bike. Um, uh, I wouldn't try to visualize cheats and lycra, which is what I'm looking at right now, but you can do. And if you do visualize that, again, it might be multi-sensory. I hope it's not, but that's where you're, you start to elaborate in detail. Um, and 
you know, and the more emotion you can then sink in with imagery, the better it will be to create a vivid image. Um, but yeah, we usually start with something fairly simple and then we will progress the senses to add more clarity around it. But that is kind of, that's what is called cognitive uh, imagery. That's kind of level one. And then we look at more motivational imagery. So, you know, your why, your purpose uh, and the meaning behind what you're doing as well. So we, we would try to look at that based on more behavior change principles for like resilience cultures. I'm interested, Lawrence, if we're going to loop you in on, on what your experience of this might have been on your kind of athletic career path. Is, is this something you were coached? Is it something you just kind of discovered along the way? Is no community club is, is getting a sports psychologist in. So at what point did, does, does that have an impact on a performance athlete? You know what I mean? Is it, are you trying to arrive at that point already understanding some of this? What, what was that kind of experience for you like with, with some of this type of stuff? Yeah, um, I actually know a, a fair bit about John's version of imagery, and it's different to what I was introduced to as an athlete. And it probably came in when we first started working with sports psychology workshops, maybe 15, 16, kind of getting into regional and national teams. Um, but it was, I never got any value out of the imagery that I was doing back then. It was very kind of a, a, a limited view of it, really. It was kind of imagine yourself on the top step of the podium having won the competition and think of how great that would be kind of thing. It was a, it, it really didn't capture me. Um, so it, it was something that I, ju I just dropped pretty quickly on. I came back to, I guess, so it, it was on the minds of sports psychologists throughout the years. But the, the approach that John's talking about here is, is just far more kind of nuanced, far more holistic, as he said. It's about engaging the emotions. It's about using it for, for motivation, but linking it to, to daily practices, to really grounded kind of, yeah. I've, had, I've, I've tried it out, John's version of myself, and it, it works in a totally different way. So I think this is a, a 2.0 version of, what, of the imagery that I've, I've had in the past. Is that the key, John, do we think? Is it about just creating those behaviours with with this type of stuff in terms of you're doing it, you align it to something, so whether that's pre-practice routines or whatever it might be, like is it tagging that on or is it just more about an exploration to begin with and then see where it might fit, where it might not? Yeah, everyone uses it in a very different way. So um, what people do quite often is they'll, they'll use recall, so they'll remember old things like having an apple, um, and uh, what we try to do is we try to uh, add fantasy in, like with cheats, you know, e eating, uh, <laughs> not cheats and lycra, I meant cheats, eating an apple. So that, that fantasy realm is, is you make things up based on what you expect to happen. And the more you can work in that area, the better it will be for your athlete, because they're going to be able to, you know, press pause on their, on their imagery and then think about what's happening in their mind based on a certain play, and then maybe I'll edit this and I will then press play again and I'll see how it turns out. Um, so again, everyone's very different in how they use it. We mostly focus on, we start with, with, with purpose. When we work with, um, you know, more high performance athletes, we'll start with purpose. And we work with it based on what's your long-term goal, which we would call macro imagery. What's your kind of your medium-term goals and all your KPIs, what do they look like? And then, What's your micro goal, which is what can you do on the piece, on the pitch, in the boardroom? So what are the small things that you can then have a, a huge impact on? And this kind of comes back to what Lawrence was saying earlier around this compassion piece. 
and self-awareness, acceptance, and then committing to a certain skill, you know, these, these theories are throughout um, what we would call functional imagery training. And they are ways that we can coach people to immerse themselves into that moment, to give them a good, I suppose, a good understanding of what might happen. Um, you know, I think in the military, they, they would call it, you know, uh, it's planning on lots of, lots of detailed levels um, and your contingency planning as well. So that's kind of what we're doing with individuals. And what we're finding out is we're finding that um, they're a lot more confident when they're going out. They're a lot more competent as well when, when they're out on the pitch. Uh, and we get, you know, feedback from coaches um, to say, you know, well, this is what's happening. This is how they're scanning. And we can then look at our data to, to try and link that into um, not just perceptions of what how the person feels, but also on the pitch data as well. So I'll tell you a funny story, if you don't mind. Always. So I uh, used to teach an A-level module, uh, well, A-level B, and we were doing something about anxiety and stress reduction. And so around this sort of mindfulness piece, we wouldn't call it mindfulness then, it was sort of imagery. So I played this tape to students, and they're lying down, relaxing, and it was about taking this man was on a bicycle, ironically, riding through, and everybody was chilled out and was relaxing, and the guy was describing the scenery, and they were, and here we are on the, on the road, and it's, we're going downhill, the wind's in our hair, and the students were very relaxed, no, it's very, very quiet. And the guy was describing the scene, and then the man said, Oh, it's a rustle in the trees. And I had a student call Russell in the class. And somebody shouted out, Oi, Russell, what are you doing in the tree? And the whole session just collapsed into hysterics. And I suppose that was my only touch a long time ago with imagery, because I know that I can't hold things long enough. And Johan Hari, it was on a um, podcast the other day, really interesting, talking about attention spans of teenagers, about 65 seconds that you know that and he was looking at social media and people that uh, he described it being covered in pepper getting a text message and you scratch yourself because you've read the text message you relax and they get covered in pepper again so you have to scratch yourself so you can't hold things for very long you can't imagine things for very long so the imagery from my perspective is something i've not been able to understand but i'm really curious now and i, would, I like the, this approach and what i'd like to think now is how can we bring that into the applied practice on the pitch where I mean, we are talking about invasion games or sports where you know the landscape changed that it's not a close skill you open your eyes and then the defense in different position i'd really like to know how i can use this in getting players to be empowered to react in the right way to what happens i'm another military and i do this in my presentation a lot pre-mortem what could possibly go wrong you know from what if there's no computer to what if nobody lasts my jokes or if there's not enough people there um, and I would, I suppose my, my question to you, John, would be, how can you bring that down to a level where the coaches that are, let's say, grassroots community can access that to enhance their coaching practice, support their players, without feeling that they're having to be told, well, you're not a sports psychologist. I think it's great, by the way. I'm really interested in that. <laughs> no, that's a good question. And, and it's, um, it's something we get asked a lot, is, is uh, how can I use imagery when I've got, I've, I've, you know, I'm playing on uh, on the weekend and I need to reset my thinking and I've got two seconds because I'm really angry or something's happened. Um, someone's put a hand in, you know, in a, in a ruck and they've stuck and I'm just fuming. Um, how can I reset? So I get asked this a lot. And 
you, you would always need to, to do that groundwork first. So we, we kind of work with individuals to focus on using multi-sensory imagery as their primer, as their kind of their initial groundwork, get the scaffolding there. And then with coaches, what we look at is we look at three things. So we'll say, so it's called a lap. So locate a cue, do something behavioral. So it could be slap your leg. In fencing, you know, you see it quite a lot of people slap their leg. Um, in, in professional sport, you, people might wear a little elastic band that they slap as well. Um, but you can do anything like pull your socks up, um, reset your boots, kick, kick your feet back into your boots, um, clear, clear the mud from your studs. Something that is a behavioral cue that will then activate, which is our A, activate imagery. And sometimes for our guys on the pitch, this is really quick. So rather than going through what it would be like to go through this set play, you know, it's really quick as in um, you're diverting thinking to what can I control right now? Um, what can I imagine super quickly, which is going to take you three or four seconds to imagine to plan for something more productive. And then the last bit is, is planning. It's like, what do you do? And then persevere. So that's our, the L is locate your cue, A is activate imagery, uh, and P is perform or plan, depending on who you are. But it's really adaptable per, per person and per team. But unless you can use that multi-sensory imagery, when you get onto that activate imagery part, it becomes quite tricky. So what we know is, is that the cue pretty much is the start of the reset. The cue is something which is behavioural that you ask your players to do. And again, in training, what we were doing training is we get our guys to, whatever your cue is, locate your cue. What is your cue? And we'll go through that. And then we'll use it in imagery as well. Even, you know, when we're working with teams in the, you know, in the clubhouse and we'll say, right, let's go through it with, with you all. Um, what's your cue? And my cue is, um, yeah, is uh, I'm going to pull, pull my pants out of my whatever. Okay, cool. That's your cue. Fine. Okay. Uh, what's your imagery? Well, I'm imagining that I'm fuming and I need to take a centering breath and calm down. Okay. And what are you doing to plan? Um, I'm going to chat to my 10. Like, did you see what's going on? Just something which is then going to be some kind of output. So that is the sequence. And there's a great deal of research on uh, mental contrasting, on um, ways to park thoughts, which is kind of the next level. Um, but that's what I would suggest people who are listening to the podcast start with that. Some kind of locate a cue, a behavioral cue, activate imagery in some way, think about planning. What can you do? What can you control? And then an output. So comms usually is our output. I think the famous example in rugby of that, I'm pretty sure Richie McCaw used to stamp his feet and Kieran Reid would look up to the top of the stand um, and like imagine something up there. I think Richie's one was about being grounded. So like burying, like trying to get his, his studs into the ground. So he felt, he felt grounded again, which is interesting. Mm. Um, how do you avoid disappointment with your images? So if, if you're spending a lot of time imagining success and imagining you doing something well and, and all these kind of positive, positive elements to it, if you then fail, get it wrong, it doesn't happen, you're unsuccessful, like how, how do you overcome, does that make it a bigger disappointment because you've spent so long imagining it to be true? Mm. How do you maybe kind of like balance that so you're not almost disrupting yourself by going, it's suddenly a bigger failure than it was because yeah. you've imagined it? So what I usually hear from athletes is they overthink. Like the evening before a match, I'm in my head a lot, I can't sleep. I'm overthinking things. But how do I control that? Um, so that's kind of where we start with that process of then going through 
what 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 it may be like to lose a match, to fail at something. And rather than saying, don't think about it, it's always good to have that, that time planned out. And you can say, right, you know, for some of the guys, we might say um, seven o'clock on a Friday, that's or eight o'clock on a Friday, that's your time to go through your, your imagery. You haven't got to sit down with a cup of coffee and, and, and do it that way. You can, wherever you want. Uh, your alarm goes off on your phone, which is a cue to then start this process. And then whatever pops into your head, that is fine. Stay with it for as long as you can. <laughs> Sometimes it will be, um, you know, uh, it might be a hooker thinking, I'm not going to hit my target. Like I can imagine, you know, I can't hit my jumpers. I just, you know, and that elaborates that detail. That's fine. Stick with it. And then it'll dissipate as all thoughts do. And then go back into, right, what can I control? What have I been working on? What have I been practicing? And we often say to our, our, um, our young athletes and our, and, our, and our not so young is focus on one thing per week. Have one like personal KPI a week. So don't make, don't make them into 20 ideas of what you're working on. Keep it, in, keep it personal. Keep it simple. And um, yeah, and, and one, maximum two, but ideally one. So it could just be body position is what I'm working on this week. Okay, so can you imagine that? And then we're going to like what it might, how it might help with speed off the off or acceleration. So again, focus on one thing, uh, which would also be really valuable for how you rate your performance as well at the end. Did I work on my my my, my body position? How did it look? How did it feel? Um, can I get any feedback? So again, these techniques are a really good way to to almost to turn down the chattered dial on that volume that's always going on in our head, but also to focus in on what's really important for, um, for, our, for our learning process around our performance. How do you turn down the internal chatter? <laughs> is this an after call? Is this, is this for you and me for, uh, for after this call, Cheats? <laughs> uh, well, probably <laughs> this is where you start doing your personal consultancy, but I'm interested in that internal chatter yeah. that, that I have, but but uh, you know, start starting a race is always in my mind. Somebody mm. says, "Look, just remember your pain, pain to do this race. You're, you know, your Olympic dreams are over. I know that." And just says, "Just enjoy it." That's the thing. But it's the general internal chatter that I had with somebody. I was working yesterday. You were thinking, "Wow, is that really going on in your head at that time?" Mm. It's crazy. Yeah, but it's not crazy to them. It's normal for them. Totally. Yeah. yeah. There's a guy that I've worked with um, who's a ultra marathon runner, and I said to him. You, like you must love running like you, you're doing it like you're going out for 50 miles just for fun he's like not really i hate it like the first the first five miles is awful i'm thinking to myself why are you going out like you've got your family you got you're out in the rain you're on dartmoor it is absolutely hammering it down you're cold like why and so for the first he says for the first five miles and again he's an individual who used to have to run with the podcast if you're running now with the podcast and hello um, with, with this podcast on but it, you know to try and quieten down that chatter um, but there'll become a point as well where where the noise will stop and you know usually it's you know you think about lower back oh it's tight you know your shins or you know they're a bit sore and that kind of as thoughts always do they'll come and go so the way that we would work with the way that we have worked with ultra runners is we set very small targets so we'll say right your target is um so, so target focus, this, the, you know, the top of the hill kind of thing, you know, you're going to go to that one point. That's, that's your focus. When you get there, your brain will go, 
okay, what's next? And so again, you 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 would um, work with individuals to then imagine what it would be like to get to the top of the hill, perhaps. This is microimagery. Sometimes they need more than that. So this is why we talk about purpose, because people who run, who, who do, um, you know, who are in sport, who do disgusting sports like rowing, like why would you want to row, right? Or, you know, or, or running, same thing over and over again. Like, you know, they're the sports where <coughs> lactate would be really high. So you need to tolerate pain. So having a purpose is really important. And that's why a lot of people who go into run, you know, marathons, they're doing it for charity. They're doing it for something bigger than themselves. So I think having your purpose in the forefront of your mind sometimes will be hugely important to turn that dial down. What was his purpose? Um, well, the ultra runner. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so his his purpose was to it was for his, it was for his kids, running for his kids, to be like an inspiration um, to his family. Um, he he had dropped out of the military and just felt that, you know, it, he, he, he didn't know anything in terms of, you know, um, what, what, what his purpose was. So he, we, we worked together to find purpose and then purpose is very different to meaning as well. So purpose is about beyond me. Meaning is, why is it important to me? So having that kind of differentiation was really, was, was, was hugely valuable for him. And then he found purpose. He then, meaning in his, in his, in his intrinsic running to again, quiet the noise down or to, or to manage the noise at least. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, the micro tasks were, yeah, just running up, you know, to a certain point, which again is, is, is the easy part of, um, you know, uh, running to a target, I suppose. But going back to Lawrence's point, you know, I'm sure just being a good dad was enough. I don't think children value, you know, I've done a few things. My daughter loves me. She doesn't know half the things I've done. I, I always want her to love me as the father that she has, not the mad runner that I was. I wouldn't say that to your ultra runner because that's probably not the right thing to say to him. But let's go back to the point you mentioned about am I enough without a medal? Am I enough as a person? Yeah, am I enough when I didn't? You know, this Olympic journey is amazing. It's fantastic. I didn't win, but you know what? So there's more to it than you know because I think when the 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 race finishes, um, as Johnny Wilkinson found, the drop goal goes over the post, you cross the finish line. What are you left with? You're left with you know your roots, your family, your friends. That are the enduring things that you come back to. I'm not negating the need to do it in any way, shape, or form. I'm trying to understand and reframe that. But that's my personal view on that. <laughs> I think everyone, of course, is hugely different in what their purpose is and the rationale behind why. Um, so I think understanding people's purposes um, and getting them to share why they're doing certain things is of huge value. Again, that's connection, right? Being related, you know, connecting with someone on that, on that deeper level by understanding, yeah, what is beyond them. I'm not um, negating his goal. I, I didn't mean to sort of pour water on that. I was just... That was just my mind working. That, mm. that. Um, I think there's also there's also a conversation, right? There's also the conversation that Bradley Wiggins has. Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna be leaving the family, and I'm gonna be going out and training my butt off. This is part of what I, who I am, and I appreciate it for you know for for this medal, but also there's a there's a bigger picture, and I think having those open conversations 
um, definitely is what this ultra ultra runner did. Uh, and again, we work with quite a few ultra runners, and those conversations that they have with family um, around this is why I'm doing it, and this is why why I'm sacrificing time, and why I'm putting more pressure on you. And just that open conversation is hugely important as well. I spoke to um, a guy who was a one of the armed security on the ships that were or were trying to be being hijacked by pirates um, in that, a few years ago. That was there, and um, he was away for months at a time, earning a lot of money, and all in his mind, all in his mind, and him and his wife used to say, "The greater good, the bigger picture." That's all it was: mm. short-term sacrifice, long-term gain. That's how he rational. That's how they both rationalised him doing that job in his absence. Yeah, I'm going to jump in with one very quick question because we've talked a huge amount about athletes. Um, so within, let's say, like a minute, because I'm I'm still conscious of time. Should coaches be using imagery in the same way? Yeah, absolutely. I feel that um, coaches do it anyway. So coaches are always, um, you know, we, we we've, we're running a study at the minute on how do coaches use imagery. And what do they think imagery is? Um, and then trying to work with coaches, whether they're sports coaches, personal trainers, whoever they're working with, for, uh, working on goals, to then upskill those individuals to be able to use this approach, which we're seeing huge adherence to exercise. Again, things like enjoyment as well, clearly, because they're all connected, um, is important as well. So I think that this method, there are other, other methods out there, of course, as well, um, is of huge value to coaches because it really is what we've seen. It's, it's a huge game changer um, for our athletes, for our youngsters, for our parents and for the executives that we work with as well. Top answer. Well inside the time. Cool. And we'll pause that there. Cheats, we are going to bounce over to you, finish us off. There's three things which I suppose oh, are random, uh, as they always are random. Um, but uh, the man on the roof was a story I, I learned. I just sat there in, you know, absolutely engaged, which is actually part of one thing I wanted to bring today and what does the engagement feel like you know I'm, I'm a lecturer and you know I'm developing coaches to to get them to think about what's engagement like how to describe engagement in a learning environment and I was my interpretation of engagement is there's nothing I'd be rather doing than what I'm doing right now I don't know if that's the answer to engagement but that's my interpretation of it I suppose my question because I'm not going to be here with um, necessarily an observation, but but question for everybody really is that um, you know Dusty Miller, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, Phil. I'm sure you may have crossed across Dusty. You know, was, was on the submarine for a while. I did some work. I did quite a lot of work around relationships and rapport environments. I'm working with the cycling team a couple of weeks going down to Cornwall. We spoke about team cohesion. Um, I'm not a psychologist. But I'm interested in about learning, you know, I learned from the, what can I learn from the submarine, what can I learn from the man on the roof? The two great takeaways from everything, nothing to do with coaching, but everything to do with coaching, everything to do with engagement. Um, and I suppose my question to all of you, which is interesting me arriving with a question rather than a statement about something I've learned, because I, I, like, I like learning, you know, from the most random of places, is that uh, we have an appetite for learning. That's why we're here. That's what we're trying to pass on to those coaches who are listening. But how can we enhance or develop a, a cultural self-improvement among coaches where they actually have an appetite for learning? 
So I gave my students a task that was not an academic journal to read. And I said to them, look, I need to know what's going to get you to do this task for next week. And we spoke a lot about what was engaging. So I gave them eight podcast groups to choose from. They could choose any speaker, any podcast of the eight. I needed to put some premise on it. Um, and it was the most engaging assignment or, uh, assessment I'd had for, for a long time. They came up with some amazing stuff. One had learned about a ballet dancer. One listened about Johan Hari and his talk um, with Simon Mundy. Um, and they actually came back and had a had a kind of light bulb moment because they'd chosen where they wanted to look for something. They'd chosen what they wanted to learn about. They'd driven, driven towards something that fascinated them. And it made me think about well, how can we get coaches to have the same thing? How can we encourage coaches to get better? Because if they get better, the people we coach, whatever level, they're going to get better. And we demand of our athletes, participants to improve. Come on, get better. You can do this, you can do that. But equally, should we not demand of ourselves for us to get better? Because that's what they want of us. Well, you want me to get fitter. Well, what are you doing about getting better? And that's the, the point I'm trying to make is that we can make such a huge difference by learning some of the smallest things, the simple things. But how can we embed that culture within the coaching community? And I say this from watching a session two weeks ago at a, at a local club. I shall mention it. They were doing exactly the same conditioning exercises with a group of youth players that I'd seen at a rugby club 20 years ago. And I thought, how are we moving on? So that's my question to you. Okay, I'll, I'll have a stab at it. So um, I, I feel that you've mentioned three things there. You've mentioned autonomy. They're, they're making their own choice. You're saying it's the parameter but you choose what you want to do. Like, you know, I have a similar thing where I set students reading. Why is it? It's because it will help you with your assignment. It'll help you with your, with your, with your exam. But some of them don't do it still, you know, and, and like, you know, everyone in the world, you know, we have our choices and we're told you should um, exercise for 30 minutes a day. You should eat five pieces of fruit. You should, and people don't do it, but we know we should do it. But it's the autonomy, I feel, that is really important to make your own mind up, which increases your effort. So I think autonomy is number one. Number two, for me, again, what you were saying around was curiosity is really key. Curiosity adds to mastery. So if you're curious about something, you want to learn about it, right? It's that disequilibrium. You don't want to feel, you want this, you want this state of, Oh, I've learned something uh, or you, you do want to be in that state of, oh, you know, I need to Google that because I, I don't, I feel, I feel uncomfortable um, not knowing. So I think curiosity is really quite key. And sometimes, uh, you know, we, we see it in schools and we see it in, um, you know, for, for, for youth sport um, when there's too much structure, then you, you lose that connection to mastery because kids aren't curious. And, you know, I see it in school a lot. They, they lose curiosity and they lose motivation. So curiosity is really key. And the final thing um, is meaning. Like, why does it matter to me? So again, if people see it, see their, their uh, whatever they're learning as part of their journey, they are more likely to invest time. That's my view. 
I'll come back to you in the curiosity where I'm trying to come up to all those three. Thank you, particularly curiosity. Mm. I, I mean, John, it sounds a little bit like SDT there, doesn't it? To be honest, like self-determination theory, just <laughs> slightly different words, but ultimately actually just kind of buying into the, an element of, of competence and relatedness. And then you said autonomy. So I, I wonder, can we, can we manufacture that? Or does it kind of just arrive at the person at the right time? Right. Like I, I would have quite a lot of conversations with people where they they just and it, and it works for me in exactly the same way. And I'll, I'll say that to them, but they'll just go that that was really useful for where I am right now. Mm-hmm. And and is that by design? Is that luck? Like the amount of times and, and this is pure coincidence. I, I schedule these podcasts when the guests are available. I don't plan this around what I'm dealing with because this is basically just free CPD for me, right? Like that's, that's one of the absolute best perks of this. I get to talk to some fantastic people every week. They're all fantastic people. Um, the amount of times it, it does relate to me in that moment. And I'm just going, right, well, yeah, I'm just going to sit and ask you a load of questions to solve my problems now. Like, cause it, it just connects. And I, and I, as I say, I don't know if you can go about planning that as an educator or a, you know, performance program manager or anything like that, or, or is it just people are moving on a journey and there's lots of stuff flying around out there and it's just a collision, right? Like you just bump into the right thing at the right time and go, this is great. I'm just going to go down this rabbit hole and and explore this and then I'll go and bump into something else. And I've got no idea if that's just the universe doing its thing or whether that's that's an actual plan. But yeah, it's just just my kind of observation and take on on how often I hear that crop up that it's, it's the right thing at the right time. My, my pet hate is players turning up and standing around waiting for like things to happen. Um, the reality of, of, where, of where I think we've all come from as well is sometimes players stand around and like the, amount, the amount of clubs I've been to where Thursday it's raining and um, the caretaker's not here to open up. Do you have any balls? Uh, anyone got any balls in the, car, in the back of the car? And then you have to, you freestyle. And they're weirdly the best sessions. So I think that um, spinning the ownership making it more focused on the players taking that that kind of that, that um, responsibility is really key. The other way that we that I've, I've done it before is um, I have written up with coaches, of course, a series of exercises or tasks or things for people to do when, when they warm up. And what they do when they arrive is they just go in, pick a, pick a kind of a lottery of things. What am I doing today? All right, this is the task. Or they can almost, big board, Everything's written on the board, which is, you know, the old trick is just always carry a whiteboard with you wherever you go. Write up a few exercises, get people started, warmed up, ideas, and then select one. You do it yourself. And so for the first 15 minutes, they are going to, you know, rather than just playing touch rugby or rather than just hanging out and catching up about the weekend, they've got a structure which they know they're going to come in. They're going to self-select exercises um, based on the parameters that I want them to learn usually on the weekend and then that's autonomy right they they are invested in that and again they usually pick things they want to get better at so mastery and what they usually do is they'll grab a buddy right we're going to do this together and they'll still talk and they'll still spin a ball and they'll still practice certain things but in a parameter that they're always deliberately learning and we're still hitting all those three std um uh points as well um that was that was as it relates to athletes and on to Cheats's, back to Cheats's idea about how we engage coaches to, to take on that same attitude. I think there's a major culprit here, which is our busyness culture. And this relates to all leaders across all spheres that we just, 
everyone feels like they haven't got the time to read a book or engage with the things that they're curious about. Everyone is curious about something. I feel incredibly lucky that my, my role as the PD in Danish fencing, it's a small organization. I was basically leading the kind of talent elite group by myself, but it wasn't, I, I just wasn't kind of put upon with every hour of every day and more. So I had some space to, to follow my curiosity and meet people that I wanted to talk to and got an incredible amount out of it. But I just don't think most people and coaches, leaders in any sphere feel they're able to do that. So there's a, there's a structural inertia there that stops us following our curiosity and, and engaging and, and, and kind of engaging in growth mindset behaviors. Um, and then there's a, there's a support piece as well for coaches. I know you, you guys have probably heard of Cody Royal, who's doing some awesome work. He wrote a book called The Tough Stuff around kind of the, the emotional burden of being a head coach, especially. And I think there's, some, there's really some emotional support that kind of can help coaches see themselves as performers, just like their athletes are. And the coach as performer is a is a really useful part of this puzzle that coaches see themselves like that. And that means physically as well as emotionally, mentally, and uh, that means taking care of themselves and, and searching for all the ways that they can improve themselves and improve the, the game that they, they're involved in. I think that was the thing about lockdown, wasn't it? it? It probably just suddenly created all this time for, for quite a lot of people to actually invest they couldn't go out they couldn't do all the other stuff they wanted to do and so i mean it, the, the world that's that's where this podcast came from it, it was just basically a roundup of what was happening that week or the coming week that people could engage with or had they missed because there was about 40 different zooms a day you know actually how, how did they just come in and, and find that so yeah i i you know it, it's tragic it needed a global pandemic to to force us to to maybe look at our lifestyle and, and look at that piece. But I, I wonder how we find a better balance because, and I think I've spoken about this last few weeks, this has definitely been harder, just trying to get people in the same on the same call at the same time because everyone has gone back to doing what they were doing and it almost feels like the world is just more busy because everyone's playing catch up for all the time that we weren't doing that. And I, I don't know if that then sets a new low as the norm and, and actually, do you know what I mean? It, it's just a, a more and more slippery slope towards we're just being overrun with the, the daily tasks and all the things that we're meant to be doing rather than taking a step back and going, what what didn't need to be done? What How can I, yeah, as you say, like carve out that space for learning? I think that's a really interesting question for people just to reflect on. I don't want to mop up this in terms of any way uh, concluding thoughts, but these are some things to think about. I did a little behavior change workshop with my students last week and sort of these, why, why, what's all the reasons why people can't exercise? And they kept, you know, it's deliberate, you took a, you know, why, all the reasons why people can't. And they came up a whole list of things, so time. So I got them to get their phone out and I said, what's your screen time? What's the bandwidth of that screen time in a group of students, 20 students? How much time I spent on my phone in one day? What's the lowest figure? Lowest figure was 42 hours. That's still 10, that's still 14 hours a week. Of which, if you listen to this podcast, it's an hour and a half. You can spread it over seven days and 15 minutes a day. But what was the most time? And actually, the more common time? I'd have said seven, eight, nine, ten type hours. Eight and a half hours. 
56 hours a week and they can't find time to do X, you know, whatever the X is. So, uh, and then I think about the pandemic and I think, well, we all have had a chance to learn how to knit, cook, learn Latin, read a book. You know, I didn't do any of that. It, it crushed me. I'm really honest. I, I didn't get better at anything other than process, submarine process. Okay. I structured every day around being on a submarine. I got up, I got food, I came back, I did this exercise, same time, did that next day. Process got me through lockdown and, and friends, you know, obviously friends process my my routine and i i think you know it is it's hugely important to me because i watch my daughter we watch our children be taught by somebody else and the blind date question is the same question i'd ask a premiership manager who's been sacked from one job rocks up at another job and goes to press conference my question would be to him is since you lost your job at that team what have you learned that you're going to bring to this team that's going to make it different? They never ask that question. They never ask that question. Their first question is, oh, I've got to sign more players. No, no. What have you done since you got lost that job to get better, to make these players better? And our question for the coach who takes up my daughter would always be around a few things, but definitely, you know, what are you learning at the moment? What are you reading? Where do you get your ideas from? How are you going to get better? And that sounds like a really challenging question, but John's hit a few things on the head. One is we need to be curious about what we do. You know, I love what I do. I'm curious. That's why I learned about cat hairs in rat cages and submarines and man on the roof. Nothing to do with coaching, but everything to do with coaching. We have to be curious. On the players turning up, pick up games. You've got a group of kids waiting for a coach to arrive. They don't need you. They definitely don't need you. They will find their own entertainment. And the challenge for you is when you arrive, you've got to do something as good as what they're doing. Because children don't need us. And my challenge for coaches is we're having a great time until the coach came along. Okay? Think about that. Because kids will engage, they'll play, they'll co-create, they'll design. And you rock up, you need to harness that, not change it. That's that's my bit around the, the, what your players doing when you're waiting to turn up. Um, and, you know, I think coaches have an obligation, and that sounds a strong word, but I said before, you know, I want you to get better at this. I want you to get your degree. I want you to become a good coach. And I want them to say to me, well, what are you learning? That when John comes back, I mean, being be my undergraduate student again, 20 years on that I'm not using acetate slides and, you know, blackboard and chalk. And but I might use the same jokes, you know, but even they've evolved a little bit. And it is important because the recipient of our coaching has got to be the recipient of new information, not the dinosaurs you mentioned earlier. Uh, and so it's really important. And so it, if you take one thing away and say to you, okay, come back with something you've learned next week. My students on reading week this week, What's my question going to be to them on Tuesday morning at nine o'clock? What did you learn? <laughs> what did you read? Yeah. yeah. What did you learn? Yeah. Yeah. I know you said that wasn't going to be the roundup thoughts, but I feel like you've you've peaked there. And I think we've peaked there. So I and I'm also conscious you've got to hit the road for a cycle. And sorry, sorry, so I feel like I've overstretched my remit on that one. No, 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 no. I think that's genuinely perfect. I think that's a really nice place to to kind of just round things up. So um 
and and we are out of time so um what i will just get you guys to do briefly is is kind of where can people find you um and have you got any other kind of like top recommendations for stuff they might want to like listen to engage with read like what's on your bedside table at the moment what have, what have you been engaging with like what would you recommend to people just to go and have a look at so um lawrence we'll come to you first i'm throwing you under the bus there because that wasn't planned but uh, it's an easy one. Uh, well, first, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Lawrence Halstead or I've got my own website, lawrencehalstead.com. Um, two, three books that are just massive. I think you mentioned Kath Bishop's The Long Win. That's just amazing. I think a lot of coaches would be interested in Cody Royal's book, The Tough Stuff, um, just opening up a whole new world for coaches and their own support needs. And then Owen Eastwood's Belonging is a brilliant book that ties into a lot around rugby and teams. Great shouts. Thank you very much. John, we'll come to you. Yeah. So you can find me uh, on Twitter, of course, with John Rhodes uh, or um, imagerycoaching.com. So you can find us there with all of our information about um, courses and what we do and who we are and where we're working. We're working pretty much all around the globe as well at the moment. Um, in, in terms of my takeaway, I was going to say, the thing to add to the cheats was um, I would always ask someone, who is your role model? Because that would, would give you a lot of detail around values rather than going into the value stuff. Um, and who am I reading at the minute? Lawrence has got a book out. Um, so if, if you haven't got it yet, go and buy it. Um, so uh, that, 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 is, that is the top, top tip for me. Uh, thank you. Over to cheats. Uh, who is your role model, John? Um, I quite like uh, C- Catherine Granger. Okay. There you go. Okay. You want me to say you? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> no. Um, so uh, my uh, the book here, I've got The Energy Bus by John Gordon. Okay. Uh, recommended to me by Wade Gilbert. It's called The Energy Bus. Who would you invite in the bus? Um, which is you know, go to where the energy is. So I've learned from spend time with people who energize you, go for the green lights, no catch phase, nothing glitchy. I've, today's been uplifting for an hour and a half for me. This is the green lights. Every time John rings me up, which is obviously once when he, only when he wants something, but my life lights up. So the energy bus is very, very good. Um, I love the fact that uh, Lawrence talked about compassion. I have a one piece of a jigsaw on my desk, I get, uh, which has got the word compassion written on it. And I'd say watch Afterlife with um, Ricky Gervais, which I think is wonderful because you can trawl through that and you get some wonderful things about compassion. It made you cry, made me cry. May want to get dog again as well, but I like that. And the recent podcast is Simon Mundy's with Johan Hari. Because he talks a lot about play, 50 minutes into it, 45 minutes into it, talks about play. And uh, my daughter goes up to the woods with a shovel, which I drop off for her. She digs holes, takes a mountain bike, and I don't see her till it's time to come home for tea. And um, if you can manufacture childhood, I'm happy that I love it. I have to go and drop the shovel off, pick the shovel up. Um, that podcast is about the paucity of play, the importance of play. I just really liked it. It's food for thought. 
Fantastic. Um, gents, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, I absolutely love the love the discussion. I feel like we've just covered a huge range of things and, and hopefully the uh, the listeners will, will take just tons and tons of stuff away. So thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to round up the roundup. So those listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to the guys for coming on and contributing to a fascinating discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Thank you.